Pastor Xavier Reese says, when it comes to eternity, the choice is yours. When you get to heaven, you're not going to find a group of people over here in the corner all bummed out. And you're going to walk up and say, guys, what are you guys so upset about? They're going to say, I can't believe it. I wanted to go to hell and God forced me to come to heaven. Certainly God knew you were going to repent, but he didn't force you to repent. For if he forced you to go to heaven while you go to hell, that's not very just. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Does it matter that Christians are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature, when all along an omniscient God already knows there will be many who refuse the gospel? And what about the promise of 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, yet He knows many will reject him and perish. These are the types of questions that arise out of the predestination versus free will debate, often associated with the disagreements between Calvinists and Arminians. Pastor Xavier seeks out the answers by applying the simple truth of Scripture during today's study. Let's listen. You have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 8, please? One of the biblical doctrines that have have divided the church since the 16th century is the doctrine of salvation under the two camps known as Calvinism and Arminianism. And the basic argument, for the sake of it, is that Calvinism teaches eternal security, that you're saved by God's decrees of predestination and election, and you cannot walk away. And really Armenians, which we're not, that's two extremes, but the other side of it is, well, we believe you abide in Christ. You can be assured of your salvation abiding in Christ Jesus. Okay? So since we're here in chapter 8 of Romans, I want to examine the second point of Calvinism using verses 29 and 28. But I'm going to do it a little different. I'm not going to expand it like I usually do. But we're taking the whole concept of the second point with the word foreknowledge, predestination, election, stuff like that, which they teach, and see if it holds water through the whole of Scripture. Okay? So, let me read here, and I'll give you the three divisions that we're going to look at. Verse 29 and 30 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, those he also called, whom he called, those he also justified, whom he justified, those he also glorified. So, there's a, what Paul here, the context of chapter 8 too, is that we're the sons of God, and we're waiting to be revealed. When Jesus reveals, we're going to be just like him. He's looking all the way to the end. So it's no big deal for God to know when you're going to be saved, who's going to be saved, and to see them completely perfected, because He knows all things. He sees the end from the beginning, right? No big deal. So that should be no problem to anybody, okay? But the text is not teaching that only a few select few were chosen by decree at the exclusion of free will, and that they're the only ones going to be in heaven, all right? Once a person merely accepts the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty and predestination, that nothing happens apart from God's divine decrees. Unconditional election as a doctrine is accepted. And that's the key. The decrees of God. So they say nothing can happen except for by the decrees of God. So they even accuse God of being the author of sin. And I'll show you that as we go along. Okay? Which is, the Bible doesn't teach. The doctrine of unconditional election is for all purposes the heart of Calvinism. If God has called you to be saved, there's nothing you can do about it. Huh? Then why preach? 
Why make the petition? So in other words, because God decreed you to be saved, you don't have to believe, you don't even have to hear the gospel. You're going to be in heaven whether you like it or not. That's what the decrees of Calvinism mean. So really then, we should teach that we're saved by the decrees of God, not by grace or faith. You see what I mean? It's unbiblical. The doctrine of unconditional election teaches a misrepresentation of God. Now, the second point is the doctrine of unconditional election, and we want to examine it through the scriptures. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. God told Moses, I will make all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be merciful or compassionate on whom I will have compassion. That verse right there is often misused and misunderstood. The verse is not teaching that God will be gracious and merciful to some and not to others. That's not what it's teaching. The verse is merely stating that grace and mercy are by the initiative of God. He's the one that initiates grace and mercy, okay? Nowhere in the Bible, not in one place, in the whole of Scripture, is there any indication that God's love and salvation are limited to the select few. The world, whosoever, means anyone, not the chosen frozen. The scriptures repeatedly teach the fact that God desires all men to be saved. Romans ten thirteen, Paul says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the scriptures equally teach that not all will be saved, as I said. Not because they are elected to damnation, but because they refuse to repent from their sins to be saved. The only biblical condition for salvation is repentance and is available to all mankind, not unconditional election, which is available only to the chosen frozen, the select few. The doctrine of unconditional election examined to the scriptures is rejected. You have to read into it. You have to do violence to the context. Notice thirdly here, verse 18. The doctrine of unconditional election understood in view of the foreknowledge and predestination. These are the words that are key. One of the favorite passages that is used um, as a proof text by Calvinists is in the book of Acts. Acts 13.48. Listen to it. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed. The King James Version says ordained. To eternal life believed. Key verse. They, they love it. The fact is that the word ordain, the word tasso, is found eight times in the New Testament. And it has a variety of meanings and none of them carry the meaning of a decree from God or of anything that is unchangeable or eternal. Context again is important. The word is translated... Addicted In 1 Corinthians 16, 15, the house of Stephanus had addicted themselves to the ministry. That's the way it's translated. Three other times it is translated appointed in Matthew and in Acts. Once it's translated determined in Acts 15, 2. And once it's translated placed under in Luke 7, 8. These are all from the New King James that I just gave you. Now, many Greek experts suggest that the word here in our text, Acts 13.48, should be translated determined 
or decided. Like in Acts 15.2, suggesting that the Gentiles had disposed themselves or determined to believe. Now, several authorities trace the King James Version, the wrong rendering, the word ordained, in Acts 13.48, to the corrupt Latin Vulgate. Cook's commentary reads as follows. Listen carefully. The AV, the authorized version, which is the old King James, has followed the Vulgate rather, it should read, were set in order for, disposed for eternal life, as in Syriac and repeatedly in Josephus, as many as had placed themselves in the ranks of those who welcome the offer of salvation. So in other words, the proclamation goes forth, and then there's a decision, a response made by the individual. Dean Alfred is another scholar, translates it as follows. As many as were disposed to eternal life believed. A.T. Robertson, everybody knows as a Greek scholar. He says, quote, the word ordain is not in the best translation here. The Jew had voluntarily rejected the word of God. On the other side, those there were the Gentiles who gladly accepted what the Jews had rejected. Why these Gentiles were ranged themselves on God's side, Luke does not tell us. This verse does not solve the vexed problem of divine sovereignty and human free agency. There is no evidence, Robertson says, that Luke had in mind an absolute decretum, meaning a decree of personal salvation. Very, very clear. You see, the experts will even differ at times in the use of the word. But once you know the various use of the word, and the most crucial thing that will determine the meaning is context, right? The context is that the Jews have just rejected the gospel as their custom was. So Paul turned to the Gentiles. Then Paul and Barnabas, tells us that text, verse 46, grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Paul holds them responsible for their decision. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Paul didn't say, and because you were not elected. No, he says, and you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. That's human responsibility. If you believe that he elected those to be lost, then God would be responsible for their lostness. Simple. In 47, he says, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And in 48, it says, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Now the meaning is in contrast to the Jews. Who had set themselves against the gospel and counted themselves unworthy of eternal life. Not that they were not uh, unconditionally elected. Okay? It doesn't say that. But if you believe that, then you insert that doctrine there, right? Because it makes sense to you. You've got to be true to your, to your theological camp. 
The verse is simply saying that as many Gentiles as were disposed or determined or decided to eternal life believed. You heard the gospel at one time and you made a decision to believe it or to not believe it. Your belief in the gospel caused you to repent and ask God to forgive you. Certainly God knew you were going to repent, but he didn't force you to repent. For if he forced you to go to heaven while you go to hell, that's not very just. Right? When you get to heaven, you're not going to find a group of people over here in the corner all bummed out. And you're going to walk up and say, guys, what are you guys so upset about? They're going to say, I can't believe it. I want to go to hell and God forced me to come to heaven. <laughs> but if you get to hell, you will hear everybody say, I could have gone to heaven and I chose to go to hell. But to acknowledge that would undermine Calvinism. Now, the passages on predestination in view of foreknowledge are important. We're going to see that the Bible never uses predestination and election unto salvation. But is always unto specific blessings that accompany salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2 is the first one. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge. The word prognosis of God the Father. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. The term predestination there and election are used interchangeably. In the scriptures as marked out beforehand for a specific purpose and blessing. And why should we have any problem God marking out certain things before they happen because he knows all things. There's no problem with that. But never at the violation of man's free will. It would be unjust. The only reason ever given is foreknowledge. According to the harmony with the foreknowledge. Now, all we know about foreknowledge is that it means knowledge beforehand. The Calvinists refuse that it simply means knowledge beforehand. We don't understand foreknowledge to its full end. If we did, we'd be God. It's an attribute we don't have. So we have to go by the word what it means. It means beforehand. All right? For whom he did foreknow, our text here in Romans 8.29 says, he also did predestinate, same word, peruso, that's the second one, to conform to the image of God. Both of these passages by implication teach us that foreknowledge concerns those whom God knows will believe the gospel and be saved. Not that he predestined them to believe without choice. It simply means that God knows from the beginning who will ultimately be saved and therefore the blessing and the inheritance is planned to be bestowed on those saved. No problem with that. Ephesians 2, 7 says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Us who? Us who have believed. Neither of these passages teach that God predestined or elected some for salvation unconditionally. But to Christ's likeness as do the remaining five passages containing the word predestination. The next one is Acts 4.28. Luke tells us there, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose, listen, determine, there's a word, before to be done. Now, the context is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption of Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that God forced Herod and Pontius Pilate to do the evil. A Calvinist will say it is. Well then, God, how can God hold Herod and Pontius Pilate responsible for the evil if God made them do it? He would be unjust. Again, here in Romans 8, 29 and 30 of our text, it says, For whom he foreknew, he predestinated, same word, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, that he might be firstborn among many, and then whom he predestined, them he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. So there's no problem with God being able to see your glorification a million years into the future at the same time. He knows the end from the beginning, right? There's no problem with that. But it doesn't mean he's removed your free will. For knowledge, again, is the reason and basis for predestination. A Calvinist would never agree with that. But again, it's to be conformed to the image of Christ, Christ-likeness. Nothing is said about the select few, nor the majority of being damned. It's just read into the text by the Calvinistic school of doctrine, but not that it's found in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul again says, But we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained. There's the word again, perizo, before the ages for our glory. The text is the wisdom of the gospel for the believer already saved, determined by God beforehand. Nothing about the elect few is stated. Ephesians 1.5, you're familiar with. Having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The benefit and blessing is to the adoption of sons, which appears only five times in the New Testament. Romans 8, 15, 23, 9, 4, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. Then you have Ephesians 1, 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, there's the word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The inheritance is the blessing of predestination. It's blessing and service. But if you hear it always of salvation, when you read that verse, then that's the way you see it. Because that's the way it's been taught to you. Look at the context. There are only six passages that mention predestination and not one teaches that God preordained from ages past who should be saved to eternal life and who should be damned to eternity. Not one. John Wesley said, quote, The doctrine of predestination as maintained by rigid Calvinists is very shocking and not utterly to be abhorred because it charges the most holy God with being the author of sin. And I amen that. <laughs> you and I were dead in trespassing sins. We heard the gospel. Jesus turned the light through the Holy Spirit. And then he gave us the decision to choose. And he provides the faith. But he doesn't make the decision for us. It's a choice. One must distinguish between the various terms used and not make them synonymous when they are not. All is according to the foreknowledge of God in harmony with what he knows beforehand. God certainly knows by his foreknowledge who is going to accept him or who's going to reject him. But it isn't because he predestinated them to be saved by unconditional election or predestinated them to be damned, but because they exercise their free will to be saved or to be damned. 
God knowing that he then will and has determined to save the conformity into Christ and the blessings. This does not violate God's initiation or man's free will. But to equate foreknowledge or the word foreknow as John Calvin or Calvinists do with the meaning of foreordination or predestination or election rather than knowledge beforehand is an error. To know something in advance before it happens is not the same as predestination that it will happen. Peter distinguishes between determinate counsel, the purposes of God, and foreknowledge in Acts 2.23. From the purpose, the pre-counsel, the purpose of God, determinate counsel beforehand, and the foreknowledge are two different things. They're not the same. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have by lawless hands crucified him and put him to death. God declared that Christ would die for the sins of the world, but he didn't force them to crucify. He held them responsible for the crucifixion, right? Simple. Paul makes the same distinction here in our text in Romans 9, 8:29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The word also denotes the differentiation, making it abundantly clear that God's foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. Foreknowledge is the reason for predestination. But a Calvinist would never agree that. And if God predestinated the elect out of the good pleasure, and he damned the greater part of humanity also out of his good pleasure, what is the sense of mentioning foreknowledge? There is no need to know anything. It is a mere personal decision of God regardless of the obvious unjustness or violence to his nature or attributes. If God just chooses and he's going to choose, then why even mention foreknowledge? If he's already declared you to be saved and that you have nothing to do with it, you don't even have to hear the gospel or respond to the gospel, you're going to be in heaven like it or not, then why, why, why are we even talking about foreknowledge? The sinner would be saved by the decrees of God instead of by faith and grace. So the second point of Calvinism is a bit shaky, wouldn't you say? When it comes to being verified by the scriptures. It cannot be found in all of the Bible. It cannot be substantiated in the context of the verses. And it cannot be reconciled with the nature and the character of God or His attributes. The doctrine of unconditional election understood in view of foreknowledge and predestination is unbiblical. They don't distinguish them. They confuse them. And so this is the second point. I couldn't pass it up since we're in Romans. And it's by examining the threefold perspective here of the unconditional election. The doctrine of unconditional election teaches a misrepresentation of God. The doctrine of unconditional election examined to Scripture is rejected. And the doctrine of unconditional election understood in view of foreknowledge and predestination is unbiblical. And so... It's such a vast subject. I can only touch this one point. You may be a Calvinist and not know it because of what you've been taught. And you've just been in doctrine and not really examined the scriptures. And not some of you could be closet Calvinists. You are, but you don't want to tell us you are. <laughs> I have never doubted my salvation. I have repented of my sins 36 years ago. I trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And I'm abiding in Christ Jesus. And I must be transformed from day to day, from glory to glory. You understand? I must decrease, He must increase. 
Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit of God will bear witness with our spirit that we are the sons and daughters, the children of God. And with that, Pastor Xavier Reese draws our study of predestination and election to a close. And if you'd like a copy of today's message for further study at your own pace, or perhaps a copy to pass on to a friend, it's titled Predestination and Election. You can request a CD for just $4. And you'll be receiving everything we heard today and last time as well when you request the message Predestination and Election. Get yours by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 